You're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. So back in Elsham, over the past number of weeks, actually it's becoming months, that we have started right at the very beginning of God's Word in Genesis. And uh, we've been looking at the foundation of our faith, about creation and, and about the fall of man into sin and, and about God's great promise that he was going to send a Savior, someone who would crush the head of the serpent. And, uh, and so we've been looking at all those things. And along the way, we ran into, uh, in chapter 5 of Genesis, and I'm going to share from there this morning, as well as some other places, but uh, we ran into this, uh, what we call a genealogy, the, the family line of Adam. And uh, you may say, well, that's not the most exciting part of Scripture to be looking at on a Sunday morning, but... Save your reservations until we get through this. We find this in Genesis chapter 5, as I said. We used to call them the begats because uh, the King James Version said, and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so on on and on, right? But the newer versions will say something like, he had a son or he had a child or a daughter, whatever. But just listen as we begin to go through this. We're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, I'm going to start right at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own image and likeness. And he named him Seth. We're going to... Go that far. So we begin with Adam, right? And we read these few things about the beginning of Adam's line. And then we get to verse 5 and we read this about Adam. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. The next person that he talks about in this line is Adam's son, Seth. So Seth's information is given, and then it says, and Seth, in verse 8, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Verse 11, Enosh is the next one. And it says, Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. And it goes to Kenan, and Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. Malalel lived 895 years, and then he died. And then is Jared is next. And for, for Brenda and I, we kind of perk up a little bit at that because we have a son named Jared. But it talks about Jared. And it says in verse 18, Jared became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years and then he died. Are, are you noticing a trend yet? And he died, right? That's the trend. It mentions the person and and that they had sons and daughters and maybe some of the things they did. And then it says, and then they died. Riveting stuff, isn't it? But don't fall asleep yet. Because something very interesting is coming up in this genealogy. 
comes in verses 21 through 24. So let's read those together. Starting verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. All of a sudden, we notice something that hasn't been in the text before. For everyone else, it says they lived so and so many years and then they died. And we come to Enoch and it says Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him. There was something about this guy Enoch that was different from the others that we find in this genealogy. That's kind of why it's important. When you come across, you you might come across a genealogy and just be tempted to skip over it. But when you come to a genealogy, read it carefully because sometimes you'll be given a little bit of information about one person or a couple of people in that genealogy that is very, very important. There was something about this guy. And what's mentioned about Enoch is Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Now, I don't think that means that the others didn't believe in God or in some ways didn't follow God, but there is special mention made of Enoch because of his walk with God. It was in some way different or maybe better or closer than the others around him. Earlier on in the book of Genesis, we see that Seth's line... When Seth was born, at that point, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's found in chapter 4, verse 26. And Enoch is obviously one of those who began to call on the name of the Lord. There's a lot more about another character in this genealogy, a couple of verses down. We find more in chapter 6, but here in chapter 5, verse 28, we find the great-grandson of Enoch is born. His name is some household name that we would all recognize, and that is Noah. And just like with Enoch, we're given just a little bit more information about Noah than we are about the others. The name Noah comes from the Hebrew word that means rest or comfort. And so in verse 29, it says, He named him Noah... And said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. (laughs) And later in chapter 6, we find in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all he, among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So Enoch walked with God and his great grandson Noah walked with God. And if we were to carry on into chapter 6, we would see a lot more about Noah. But this morning, we're concentrating and looking at Enoch and how he walked with God. And probably, maybe for you too, but for me, one of the first questions that comes to my mind when I read that is, what does it mean to walk with God? What does it look like for someone to walk with God in the way that Enoch did? 
And immediately my mind goes to a passage of Scripture over in the book of Micah. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, it talks about walking with God. But before we get to that verse, we need to look at the context of what's happening in Micah chapter 6. And in Micah chapter 6, it's pretty obvious that there is a problem between God and his people Israel. And in verse 1, God is kind of lodging a complaint against his people. He says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Verse 3 says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? In some way, the people of Israel were saying that God had become a burden to them. How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then in verse 4, he begins to talk about the things that he has done for his people. And he says, verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt. I sent you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Verse 5, remember how Balak, king of Moab, called on Balaam to curse Israel because they were too powerful for him and his people because they served the true and living God and how Balaam wouldn't curse them, but he would only bless them. So God is recounting to Israel some of the things that he has done for them in the past. And now he says it's Israel's turn to talk. It's Israel's turn to say, after all has God, God has done for them, they're still wondering how they can please him. What do they have to do in order to please God? So verse 6, he says, they, they say to God, with what shall I come before the Lord? What is it going to take to please God? What shall I, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With calves. Is that what's going to please God if I bring calves before him and sacrifice them? Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Is it the number of sacrifice I bring? Do I have to get to a certain number and then God is pleased with me? With 10,000 rivers of oil? And then he says this. He says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression?" The fruit of my womb for the sin of my soul. Can can you just hear the angst and the frustration in these people? They're saying, what do I have to do to please God? What's it going to take? See, there's something missing here in Israel. They're doing all the stuff that they think they should do. They're bringing the sacrifices. They're they're, they're making the offerings. All of those things, but... But now listen to God's response to them. The question is, what do I have to do to please God? And so we come to this verse in verse 8. And here's God's answer to them. Verse 8, he says, he has shown you. In other words, God has already given you the information that you need. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
to act justly. I, I mean, we think of justice and, and making sure that the needs of those around us are being met. Look at James. And James says a pure religion before God and the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Seek justice. Love mercy. Some of your verses are going to say love kindness. And then it says to walk humbly with your God. See, God is calling for a deeper relationship with himself. Expressed not only in what they do, not only in the sacrifices and the offerings that they bring, but how does that relationship affect day-to-day life? I think you might agree with me that when you use the term walking, it sounds like a pretty mundane thing, right? I mean, it's just slow. It's just going here and there. It doesn't seem like it's all that exciting. We, we, we kind of probably, if you're like me, you want to run with God, right? You want to run here and run there and rush over there and do great things for God. You want to you bring glory to God by what you do. You want to you, you have bigger opportunities. We're not always so interested in walking with God step by step, day by day, little by little. Brenda and I listened to, a couple weeks ago, a very powerful message by Francis Chan. If you haven't listened to it, you could, if you have the opportunity. It's called The Power of a Quiet Life. And he talked about how we so often look for the limelight, right? He talked about the danger of this spot of the stage, he said when he goes on stage, it's like, it's like a little bit of a, a poison into his soul. Because it's so easy to get caught up in the lights and, and, and the things around and not really be there for the right motives. Because we want bigger and bigger crowds to speak to, right? Right? And so what do we do? And those of you who are in the social media generation, what do you do? You post your devotions on, on social media, TikTok or, or Facebook or whatever it is. And you, you get your picture of yourself and, and your open Bible and maybe a cup of coffee and, and a muffin. And make sure that people know that you are spending time with God. Right? But in this message, he asked a question that just stopped me. He said, did Jesus ever pursue a crowd? Did did he say to his disciples, now you guys get out there and get me more people. Do you know who I am? I deserve a bigger crowd. I deserve a bigger audience. We don't see that. In Scripture, do we? Often we see the opposite. Jesus is speaking to a big crowd, and then he dismisses the crowd, and what does he do? He goes off by himself into the hills somewhere where he can be alone and spend time with his Father. Often he stays out all night, or he gets up really early in the morning, and he goes out by himself to talk to God, just between them. Just to hang out with his father. 
Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking. It's in part of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he's talking about different areas of life. And how do we, how do we live in these different areas? How, how do we walk faithfully with God in the areas of our, of our everyday life? And, and the first area he talks about is in the area of our giving, right? And verses 1 to 4 of Matthew chapter 6, this is what he says. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Then your, then your giving will be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you openly. So to the world around, it may never know how much you give or where you give or what kind of opportunities you're involved in, that's okay. The Lord knows and he rewards the generous heart. So just keep on walking with God. Just just faithfully walk in the area of giving. Don't let everybody know what you're doing to be seen by them. Talks about a second area in verses 5 and 6, and that's prayer. And he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. That's their motive. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So he says it's the same with prayers as it is with giving. Do it quietly. (laughs) Pretty sure it was D.L. Moody. I love love this story. D.L. Moody was uh, preaching in a big event. And um, before he got up to preach, uh, somebody else got up to pray. And they just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And finally, D.L. Moody had enough. He got up from his chair. He walked over. He put his arm around the, uh, the guy who was praying. And he said, well, our brother here finishes his prayer. Let's go on with the service. <laughs> Is it wrong? To pray in public? Absolutely not. But we need to examine our hearts. Why are we doing it? Are we doing it to be heard by those around us? What's the motive behind our praying? Jesus said it's more profitable for you to go off by yourself and pray secretly because then you receive the reward of God, not the reward of men. And then Jesus addresses one more area in verses 16 to 18 of Matthew 6. And that's fasting. And he says, when you fast, so in other words, you need to fast, but when you fast, 
Do not be sober, somber like the hypocrites are, for they disfigure their faces to show men their fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head. Wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So in all these areas of life, he says there is a, a, there's an opportunity to simply walk quietly with God. When we come back to Genesis chapter 5 and to our man Enoch, we read that Enoch walked faithfully with God throughout his 365 years of life. And in the end, it says he walked with God into eternity. It's something we, we can't even hardly imagine. Unlike the others in Genesis chapter 5, he did not see death. There's only one other Bible character who didn't see death, who was taken to heaven without facing death, and that's Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind and didn't face death. And we don't have a lot of information about this man Enoch in Scripture, but we do find him a couple of other places. We find him in Hebrews chapter 11. And as you may be well familiar with, Hebrews chapter 11 is, a, is kind of a record of the heroes of faith. And Enoch is in there. So verse 5 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life, for, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So those, that, that tells us a whole bunch about Enoch. It tells us that the way that he lived pleased God. Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Verse 6 tells us that it was what it was about him that pleased God, and that was his faith. He was a man of faith. Verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on and explains what this faith is all about. Because anyone who comes to him must believe or have faith that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He was a man of faith. He was a man who pleased God in the way that he lived out his life in every area. There's one more place that we find this man Enoch, and that's in the little book of Jude. In Jude, uh, there's only one chapter, so Jude 14, verse 14. And, and we know it's the same guy because it says, Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men. You see, the book of Jude is talking about sinless, godless people. And, and when we look into, into the book of Genesis, just in chapter 4, we look at the line of Cain. 
And we see sinless, godless men. We see Cain who, who killed his brother Abel. Then we see his, uh, is it his great grandson Lamech who, who boasts about killing a man. And just the, the wickedness is there. And so Enoch obviously spoke into those situations. He spoke, he preached righteousness. He lived a life. So that means we're not talking about the fact that you live a quiet life or you don't say anything about God. Enoch was a preacher of righteousness. He, he spoke out against the unrighteousness that was evident in the world around him. So Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, about the ungodly. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He was a man who pleased God, who walked humbly with God, who spoke up against evil and injustice. And in those few little snapshots, we find just a bit more about this man, Enoch. There's a picture in Scripture that we're all probably quite familiar with. It's found in the book of John, chapter 15. John 15, Jesus is talking, and he uses the picture of a a, a vine and branches. And how branches need to be connected to the vine in order to grow. We can all, we can all picture that. You who are farmers, you know, if you, have, if you have a tree or you have a plant, it needs the nourishment from the vine, right? If it doesn't get that, it's going to die. Jesus said it would have to be pruned back so that it would somehow produce fruit. But the picture isn't just about vines and branches, It's about us, about followers of Jesus. And the picture is about walking with God, remaining in him, abiding in him, getting our nourishment from him. And if we stray from him, if we take another path, we're going to end up being destroyed because we can't survive spiritually outside of a relationship with Christ. We need to walk. We need that every day Walk with God. Enoch walked with God. His life displayed a dependence on God that affected every single part of his life. So the question to us this morning here in McGregor is, does your life, does my life display a dependence on God? Are we walking with him day by day? Are we making it our ambition to live a quiet life? I want to come back to that that message that I talked about earlier, about living a quiet, steady life and walking with God. So in this message, the power of a quiet life, Francis Chan said that his wife was reading through the book of Matthew chapter 6. And she asked him a question. She said, does anyone do anything in secret anymore? And what she meant, of course, was, does anyone go into their closet and shut the door and pray to their fathers in secret? Does anybody make sure that their left hand doesn't know what their right hand is doing? That's what she was referring to. To praying and giving and fasting. But he said, 
I had to look down and say, yes, people do stuff in secret. All of the bad stuff. All of the sin. We do it in secret. In John 3, verse 19, Jesus said, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. I don't know, do you remember? That scripture tells us that we're supposed to hide the righteous deeds that we do, like we saw in Matthew chapter 6. We're supposed to hide the righteous deeds. We're supposed to go into our closet. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to spend time alone with God so that we can be strengthened to, to do whatever he has for us to do. We're supposed to, we're supposed to hide our righteous deeds. And at the same time, we're supposed to confess our sins to one another. Remember what James said in James 5, verse 16? He said, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Maybe the reason that we don't see a lot of healing in our world, and I, I, I'm talking about healing of relationships, I'm talking about sickness, I'm talking about all those things, is that we're doing exactly the opposite of what God calls us to do. We're, we're making a big show of the outward signs of righteousness, and we're hiding our sin in the darkest corners of our soul. So maybe walking with God simply means that we're willing to tell on ourselves when we mess up. To ask for prayer in those areas that we struggle with instead of trying to cover them up and look good in the eyes of the world when all the time we're hiding our sin in the back corner and not willing to deal with it. Believe me, I'm not saying this just to you this morning. Because I've been there, done that. Tried to hide the sin and look good on the outside so the people will know that I'm a good person. So maybe this morning it's time for us to just examine our lives again. If we want to be people who are known for walking with God as Enoch did, Maybe it's time to just take stock of our lives. Physically, for myself, walking has been one of the joys of my life. I grew up on an acreage just outside of Nipawin, Saskatchewan. And our acreage backed onto a forest, and the forest was full of trails. And I would spend hours back there just walking and enjoying the nature And up until a few years ago when my health uh, began to take some turns that kept me from walking long distances, I would try to walk up to six miles a day several times a week. And those were my times that I would spend specifically with God alone. But I think in a spiritual sense, that's what the story of Enoch reminds us of. That we need to have a consistent daily walk with God in every single area of our lives. We need to deal with sin openly and then go behind closed doors to do our acts of righteousness. 
because I think if Enoch had lived in our day and he had died as the others did and we were to bury him and put up a, a, a gravestone, the epitaph on that gravestone would be very simple. It would be Enoch walked with God. I, th- I think of what Cody shared this morning. He thought his testimony was boring. But I can't think of a greater testimony than that, that someone walks with God like Enoch did. That in every area of their life, they just consistently, daily walk with God, just going into their closet and praying and, and then living out their faith on a daily basis. It's the greatest testimony that any of us could ever have. Maybe this morning you need to deal with something in your life. I would just encourage you to find someone that you trust to talk to, that you're willing to share the struggles that you're going through. But most of all, let's just make it our ambition to walk with God in a steady, daily way. Because the God who sees what's done in secret will reward us openly.